fourth century. And of course, some of this will carry on into the fifth century, but for the most part, the Arian controversy gets solved. So, um, oh, and just to repeat what Albert said, um, there will be no class next week because I'll be at the Southern Baptist annual meeting. So, uh, but two weeks from now, we'll be back on. All right, so introduction. The Arian controversy was the greatest theological controversy in church history. This was the biggest one, okay? Imagine if the Jehovah Witnesses got control over all the churches of the world and got all their buildings and had the government pretty much on their side persecuting real believers. Because Arianism is essentially what the Jehovah Witnesses believe about Jesus. Um, little distinction, but not much. And so this is, this is a big deal. Now, obviously, you know, the Jehovah Witnesses haven't had any near the kind of success that, that Arius had, but, but pretty much this whole issue centers on the fundamental question, who is the Christ? And when I say that, I want to be clear that the debate centered on Christ as the Son or the Lagos. It didn't focus on Jesus as the man. The question is, who is the Son of God in relation to the Father? Is he equal with the Father? Is he God? Like, is there one God that's multiple persons? Or is the Son the first of the Father's creations? That's ultimately what, what this, this comes down to. And so some of the, the big players in this thing, there are four primary personalities. Um, there's more than four people, but these, I guess you could say, are the big four um, when it comes to the Council of Nicaea. You have Alexander, who was the, um, the Bishop of Alexandria. Uh, and you have Arius, who is the heretic. Uh, you have Athanasius, who will become the Bishop of Alexandria. And then you have Eusebius of Nicomedia, which is not the same as Eusebius of Caesarea. And so we don't want to mix those fellows up. Now, again, other people play a significant role, but these are the ones who are going to play the largest role. Alexander, he was a patriarch, because remember, in the major cities of the Roman Empire, those bishops were called patriarchs. Alexandria, Rome, Constantinople, um, Antioch, and then eventually Jerusalem. Okay, so Alexander was a patriarch. Arius was a priest or a presbyter, an elder that was part of the Alexandrian church, and he gets exiled. Okay, he gets, or excommunicated, shall I say. And then Athanasius ends up being his replacement as a, a presbyter in Alexandria. And then when Alexander dies, Athanasius becomes the new Alexander. Okay, he'll become the, the patriarch of, uh, of Alexandria. Okay, and so the Council of Nicaea ends up being called in 325 by Constantine to settle the issue once and for all. Because he realized this controversy had the potential to rip the church apart. Oh, and by the way, Eusebius of Nicomedia, he was wanting to please the emperor with a compromise, but his compromise was Arianism. So Eusebius is going to be a bad guy in this, in my opinion. All right, so a little bit of background to the controversy. When Constantine gained control of the eastern half of the empire in the year 324, he realized that the eastern church was bitterly divided by a major doctrinal dispute. This did not really make waves in the West. The West was thoroughly Trinitarian. But in the East, this was a big deal. And so it begins in the year 318 in Alexandria with a Libyan named Arius. Life dates 256 to 336. Uh, he's an elderly presbyter by the time we get to 318. He's an old man at this point. And simply his argument was this, 
that the Father alone is God. The Son is not God. Only the Father is eternal, infinite, and uncreated. And so he claimed then the Son, or the Logos, was a created being. That the Father made him. He's the first of the Father's works. So one of his lines is, there was never a time when the Father was not, but there was once a time when the Son was not. Okay, so the Son had to be made. Uh, Now, he's, according to Arius, the greatest of all of God's creations. He's closer to God than the rest of all creation. And all creation can only relate to God through the Son. But the Son is part of the creation. He's not God. Now, Arius's motive, okay, and, and it's important that you understand this. He didn't wake up in the morning and say, how can I be a great heretic? Because I want to lead people to hell and be remembered in history as the worst heretic ever. No, he woke up in the morning thinking he was doing the right thing. You know, except for the Joker, most bad guys think they're good guys, okay? Joker's one of the few that knows he's a bad guy, and that's why he blows stuff up. But Arius really thought he was just defending the truth. He says, you know what? The Hebrew Bible makes it clear there's only one God. And the New Testament makes it clear there's only one God. And everybody in the East was in love with what Origen taught. And Origen, I talked about him a few weeks ago. Origen, um, you know, argued that Jesus is eternal. Jesus is God, but there's degrees of divinity. So Jesus is God. He's, of, he's eternally generated from the Father, which is true. But because he's eternally generated from the Father, he's a degree less than the Father, even though he's eternal and even though he's God. And Arius is like, that's nonsense. That would mean there's two gods. Now, of course, the followers of Origen would be like, no, no, it's one God. And, you know, they, they, they share divinity, but one is inferior to the other. And Arius, rightly, I think in that case, thought Origen's position made no sense. And this was very popular with most Eastern bishops. Um, Arius said, look, there's no degrees of divinity. There's no degrees of divinity at all. Uh, Pretty much you have God and everything else. And the everything else is separated from God by an infinite degree. Okay? And so so Arius was pretty much uh, saying that you can't have origins view here. It doesn't work. Now, he reasoned then, if you have God and everything else, that this meant that the Son could not be God if the Father's God. Because if you only have one God and the Father's God, then the Son can't be God. You get what I'm saying? He's saying monotheism requires this. Now, he gets strongly opposed by the boss of Alexandria, which is Bishop Alexander or the Patriarch Alexander. And Alexander more or less says no. You know, and he also disagreed with Origen. He's like, I think Origen was wrong as well. There is no degrees of divinity, but instead, the fact that the Son is eternally generated from the Father, it proves something different than what Origen thought, and it proves something opposite to Arius. It shows that the Son is fully and truly God in the same absolute sense as the Father, but distinct based on the fact that He's the Son and the Father is the Father. And of course, we would agree with Alexander. He's 100% right on that. Okay? And so he would say Arius is a polytheist because even if he says there's only one God, he's treating Christ as if he's a God, right? A lesser God, but now you got more than one. You know, how's that different than the pagans like Sol Invictus being the supreme God, but then you have all the lower gods. So Arius said he's protecting monotheism. Alexander's like, no, you're a polytheist. But then Arius would be like, no, you're a polytheist because you've got two equal gods. And so, of course, that's how this is 
this goes down. Um, and so what happens is Arius is deposed. Alexander's in charge of Alexandria. Arius gets deposed uh, by Alexander and a council of Egyptian bishops. So it's not just Alexandria. They bring in all the Egyptian bishops. And in 320, which is two years after the controversy starts, Arius is deposed from his position. And Alexander was hoping this would be the end of it. This was just the beginning. What Arius did is he gets in touch with his seminary buddies. And I, I know that sounds like modern talk, and it is, but it's essentially the same thing. He goes to Israel. Okay? He goes to Israel where he's got a lot of friends, a lot of bishops in certain, uh, uh, certain uh, cities of Israel or, or Palestine, as, as some people wrongly call it. Uh, but, but anyhow, um, he goes there because he had a lot of friends that went to the same school he went to. He was educated in the Antiochian Theological School under the famous teacher Lucian. And all of his classmates really liked him. Arius was a very personable guy. And so he sends letters to his classmates who are now all bishops and priests spread all over the East. And more or less, he says, look, Lucian taught the view that I hold. And he probably did. It's hard to say for sure, but Lucian probably did hold a version of, of what Arius did. And so these letters worked. And you have all these bishops now saying we're on Arius' side. And what these Alexandrians did was just wrong. And so what's going to happen then is most church leaders in the East get caught up in this dispute. Okay, now we're still in, in, in the year 320 at this point. Constantine hasn't taken over the East yet. So understand, this has four more years to just grow this controversy. And it turns out, though, like in retrospect, that of all the bishops that sided with Arius, very few actually understood his doctrine and would have accepted it if it was explained clearly to them. They just thought, hey, we're on Arius' side. We know him. He's a good guy. And yeah, Origen uh, was wrong on this, and Alexander's definitely wrong. And one thing to consider also is it was confusing. Because if you were to take Arius and Alexander's arguments against Origen, it would sound like they're close to each other. So Arius' buddies would be like, this must be personal. You know, this must be Alexander just, uh, you know, going after this guy out of rivalry or, or, or what, whatever it might be. Okay? So... Constantine takes over. This is now all over the eastern half of the empire. And so he feels as emperor, he needs to restore unity to the divided church. He doesn't want this to destroy, uh, you know, Christianity. So he summons the first ecumenical council of bishops from all over the eastern empire. And of course, western bishops were invited as well. Not a lot were able to make the trip, but some did. Um, and they show up to settle this. So they meet in the city of Nicaea which is in Northwest Asia Minor, which is Turkey, and that was in the year 325. Now, when it comes to the Council of Nicaea, Constantine wanted this to be resolved quickly. He's like, you know what? This council is going to be short. It needs to be short. Uh, he was wrong. <laughs> it lasted from May 20th to July 25th. Um, that's, that's some time <laughs> for people to be arguing and, 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 and trying to figure this out. Now, 318 bishops attended. And they brought a much greater number of their underlings, like presbyters and deacons. And then you have thousands of others there as observers. But only bishops were allowed to vote. Only their opinion mattered when it came to hammering out doctrine. Now, some who were there leave a phenomenal scene or description for us of, of guys that have missing limbs and scars and some people with patches because their eyes were ripped out and so on because Keep in mind, Diocletian started the worst persecution in history 
just like 20 years before this. These are the survivors of that. The guys who are bishops now were like priests back then. So they're all showing up and you, it looks like these guys been through war. Now they've been through persecution. And so seeing all these, uh, I guess you could say, heroes of the faith in one place definitely would have been a, a sight to see. Um, they would have had stories to tell. So Constantine gives them this nice, luxurious palace to meet in. And so definitely an upgrade from prior to Constantine. Um, and Constantine takes an active part in the debates and discussions. And you might be thinking, well, wait a minute. He's a relatively new believer. Yes, but he was acting more like a chairman of the board. And he wasn't just forcing his will on people. He actually depended on an advisor, the Western Bishop Hosius of Cordova. Um, and Hosius had good theology. You know, he believed in the divinity of Christ, his full deity, just like most Western Christians. And so Hosius told Constantine that, look, here's what you need to happen as a result of this council. Everybody, all the bishops need to sign something saying they accept the full deity of Christ. If you want to preserve the unity of the faith, that's what you need to push. And what I could say is I'm glad this guy was Constantine's advisor, <laughs> you know, because um, eventually Constantine's going to get another advisor who's not so good, but I don't want to get ahead of myself. So by the time you get to the end of all this, you end up with this confession of faith after a lot of rough drafts and redrafting and so forth. And so they get this, this final draft, which was called the Nicene Creed. But I don't want you to think that this Nicene Creed is the Nicene Creed we have today. Okay, the Nicene Creed we have today is actually written in 381 at the Council of Constantinople, which is going to be improved upon this one. And, you know, you could see the differences if you looked them up. But I want you to see what was in the Nicene Creed of 325. I'm going to read an excerpt from it, um, from this book, 2,000 Years of Christ Power uh, by Nick Needham. This is a great, great church history book. Um, so 222, I wrote that down so I could find it fast. Um, so here's the thing. Here's the Nicene Creed. 325 says, we believe in one God, the father almighty creator of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the son of God, begotten of the father, only begotten. That is, and this is where they start refuting areas from the essence of the father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not created of the same essence as the father. And there's a sp particular word they're going to use called homoousius, which is going to be a, a, a really, really big deal here. Um, and then it continues saying through whom all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, who for us human beings and for our salvation came down and was incarnate, was made man, suffered and rose again on the third day, ascended into heaven and is coming again to judge the living and the dead. And we believe in the Holy Spirit. That's where it ended. Um, and so, again, good. What comes out in 381 will be even better. But you could tell this was definitely a refutation of Arius's heresy. So, before I get into the arguments that happen and what led to that being drafted, let me first just hit something that really doesn't matter. <laughs> but a lot of people don't know this. The Nicene Creed did not only decide Arianism. Um, it also fixed the date of Easter. So if you ever wondered why Easter changes every year, you could place the blame on these fellas at this council, is all I'm telling you, okay? 
And so, uh, and they also dealt with some other issues as well. Like, what do we do with those who denied Christ during persecution? Is there a rule that all churches have to follow? And they agreed there was. I just don't remember what it was. Uh, but they did figure that out. Um, but concerning Easter, you got two options, two opinions that could happen. One is that it can't be a fixed date because it needs to be Sunday. And Sunday is like the dates, like, for example, Sunday... Uh, whatever the numeric date is this Sunday, next year, that same numeric date's not going to be a Sunday. But since Jesus rose on a Sunday, if you always want to celebrate Easter on a Sunday, then it can't be a fixed date. You can't say it's this date on the calendar. You just have to say it's going to be a certain Sunday every year. That's the first position. The second position is like, no, let's use the calendar to figure out exactly what day of the year Jesus rose from the dead. Okay, we know it was a Sunday, but what was the date? on the Jewish calendar or the Roman calendar or whatever. And then let's permanently observe that date, whether it falls on a Wednesday or a Sunday or what have you. Now, of course, nobody, not a lot of people really like that option. So the council was a kind of compromise that would keep it on Sunday, but make it as close to Passover as as they could. And so here's how it would work. It's to be celebrated on the first Sunday after the first full moon after the vernal equinox. You might be like, huh? Okay, vernal equinox, March 21st, the exact halfway point between winter and summer. Okay, that's when the day and night are supposed to be pretty even. Um, I guess if you're closer to the equator, who cares? Point is, you know, March 21st. Then they say whenever the full moon happens after March 21st, then the very next Sunday should be Easter. That gives you a 29-day window. Because it is possible to have a full moon the very next day, March 22nd. So then that would mean that, um, that Easter could be a day later, two days later, what have you. It could be very close to March 21st. Or the first full moon after March 21st could actually, like let's say the full moon was March 20th. Well, then you're going to wait a while. Okay, so then you're going to end up almost at the end of April. And then, of course, it could be anywhere in between. So that's why Easter shifts. It has to deal with the full moon um, as it relates to March 21st. Now, the, the accomplishment of the compromise is it allows us to celebrate it on a Sunday, but it also does keep it pretty close to the time of Passover. It's usually not that far off, a lot of times in the same week. Um, On some lucky years, it actually, we do end up celebrating Easter on Sunday, which we always do, but it also happens to be the, the, it would, it lines up with like Passover would have been on a Friday, you know, so Good Friday actually lines up with Passover and, you know, that happens every now and again. And it's really cool when it does. I remember it happened a couple years ago when we had a Good Friday service and a a sunrise service. And I was able to tailor both of those uh, sermons to the fact that it lined up on those dates. I believe it was 2019, if I remember right. Um, if I'm wrong on that, then I blame Albert and we'll just move on. Um, so, <laughs> so yeah, uh, so that's the non-controversial stuff for us, right? Easter. The primary issue was this Arian controversy. And the debate was centered on the Greek word ousios, which means substance or essence or nature. Ousios, okay? So you're learning a little bit of Greek here. Now, the most important word was homoousios. Now, what does homo mean? No, not gay. Nice. <laughs> homo means a same. 
okay? It means same. And so same usia, same essence, same substance. And so the, the, what they were arguing and, uh, is that Christ is the same substance or essence of the Father. And they put out a lot of anathemas in this creed. And anathema is a, it's stronger than excommunication because back then excommunication um, simply meant you're temporarily banned from the Lord's Supper, kind of like what Ambrose did to uh, Theodosius, like I was talking about last time. It was considered excommunication, but he was still allowed to show up to church sometimes, right? Anathema is like, we're saying you're an unbeliever, get out of here, right? Now, what I would tell you is that the New Testament has anathema and excommunication is the same thing. They're not different things. But here, what they're essentially doing with their anathemas is they're excommunicating Arians. Now, the way the decision went down was of the 318 bishops, all but three of them voted for the creed. Only three, Arius and two of his followers, insisted on Arianism. And then they were exiled. Uh, pretty much Constantine's like, all right, you're banished from the empire. And so they have to flee to uh, Germanic tribes. And, and so I, I just put that out there because the Da Vinci Code all those years ago, I know it's, it's no longer relevant, but in the story, they tried to make it sound like, like Constantine and this council made Jesus God, and it was a close vote. It wasn't. It was 315 to 3. If you call that a close vote, you are horrible at math, is all I'm saying. Like, like you know, yeah, go back to third grade. No, first grade. Um, so, so pretty much, yeah, I mean, this, the, the church was almost unanimous on this. So what was Arius' specific argument that he made at the council? Because keep in mind, he believed that the scriptures supported his position. He wasn't trying to be unbiblical in his mind. And so one argument centered around wisdom in Proverbs 8. In Proverbs 8, it talks about wisdom, like God created the world through wisdom, very similar to what the New Testament says about God creating the world through Christ. But then in Proverbs 8, it talks about wisdom being the first of God's creations. And so if wisdom, if wisdom is, uh, is to be equated with Christ there, then it would seem like Christ was created. At least that's the argument that uh, Arius makes. And you know what's interesting? Uh, this was probably 20 years ago, but I remember some JWs knocked on my door, and this was the exact argument they used. 1,700 years later, and I didn't know how to answer them that day, I, so I changed the subject and beat them on 10 other points. That way I still won, but I thought like, man, I got to go back and figure out this one. Well, they had it figured out even back then, just to let you know. It, it's not a new argument. Um, now, other arguments Arius would make came from Mark 13, 32, John uh, 5, 19, John 14, 28, and 1 Corinthians 15, 28. And if you want to know what the gist of all these are, is that they speak of Christ's submission to the Father and Jesus being subject to the Father. Jesus doesn't know the day of his return. Jesus says, the Father is greater than I. Again, Jehovah Witnesses will use these, these same passages. Arius argued that these comparisons showed that Christ was deficient in comparison to the Father, and therefore he could not be God. Now, the Nicene argument was as follows. Christ was and is the same substance and nature as the Father, homoousius. Any other statement is polytheistic by default. They said the monotheism of the Old Testament and the continued insistence of it in the New Testament have to be defended, and Arianism itself is incompatible with monotheism since it makes Christ a second, lesser, subordinate God. 
Furthermore, there are scriptural arguments. In John 10, 30, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. The Greek word is hen, which means substance, essence. This verse refutes both Sabellianism. Remember, Sabellianism was modalism, where it says, where it tries to say the Father and Jesus are the same person. If he wanted to say I and the Father are the same person, he'd use a word different than hen. Um, by using hen, he's saying we're the same essence, which refutes both heresies, Arianism and Sabellianism. So even though homoousius, it's an invented word, you can't find it in the Bible, the council invented it to describe Christ's relation to the Father. But Jesus' own words in John 10.30 essentially say the same thing as what homoousius means. Um, now, there's numerous other scriptures that also affirm the deity of Christ, whether we're talking about Hebrews 1 or Colossians 1. I mean, you just find it all over the place. The scriptures that were used by the Arians, they weren't ignored. There was an answer. They simply display a subordinate role for Christ in terms of the economy, but not in terms of ontological inferiority. Now, that's a mouthful, but let me explain that. You have what's called the ontological trinity and the economic trinity. Okay, ontological just means who God is in his being. Who is God? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There's no subordination in who God is. The Son is not eternally subordinate to the Father. Okay, but in terms of the economy, what God does in history to save us, in God's work, the Son takes a subordinate role by becoming flesh, by becoming a man that puts him under the will and authority of the Father. Okay, so all the verses where Christ says the Father's greater than I or I don't know when the return is, that's because Christ is putting himself under the Father's authority and not using his equality with God in that case, but he's leaning in, for lack of a better word, for the purpose of God's economy, God's work in saving us. That's all that's happening there. I mean, Philippians 2 makes it clear he existed in the form of God but he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, right? So in a sense, when he, be, he empties himself into the form of a man, that's when he says, all right, even though I'm God, I'm going to function in a subordinate role to the Father now for the purpose of saving uh, the people we've elected. And so that is what explains every verse the Arians bring up is the point. But Arius didn't see that. He, he couldn't comprehend that. He wasn't putting it together right. Um, and so the Council of Nicaea voted in favor of Alexander and Athanasius' position. And just to let you know, Alexander is the old bishop. He was the main spokesperson, but he let his, uh, his prized priest, Athanasius, a young buck at this time, um, take up a lot of the arguing, and Athanasius did such a great job. He instantly made a name for himself in the whole church. And Athanasius is probably one of my favorite theologians of all time. And so, again, what, they, what the council agreed on is Jesus is true God of true God, begotten, not made, and of homoousius to the Father, of the same substance of God. Again, only three of 318 bishops voted for the Arian position. And uh, although this seems cut and dry, you think, okay, lesson's over, let's pray and get out of here. Um, this is actually going to open a can of worms. And the next 60, almost 60 years is going to be chaotic. Because even though this was the decision, instantly it's going to be rejected by probably the majority of Christians. Even though these bishops voted for it, a lot of the bishops are going to change their position. So, a lot we need to talk about. The council and the creed did not bring the unity that the emperor desired. 
The Eastern Church will fight for the next 50 years. So you have three parties. The only way you can understand this is if you know these three parties. The Arians, the Nicenes, those are the people pro-Nicene Creed, and then the Originists. And I'll explain these pictures in a moment. But the, the, the Originists... Uh, the majority of the Eastern bishops were originists. And remember, the originist position was the Son is divine. He's not created. But because they're Platonists, the Son is Plato's middleman. So in some way, the Son is inferior to the Father by a degree. But he's still, he's still uh, divine. Okay? He's, he's less divine than the absolute divinity of the Father, but he's still divine. He's still part of, of, of God. That's the originist position. Now, real quick about those pictures. Let me put this back up. One of the, my favorite rumors that's not true is that St. Nicholas, because St. Nicholas, Santa Claus, before he became the fat man in the red suit, Santa Claus was at, he was one of the bishops at the Council of Nicaea. And History has long record, had the rumor that he punched Arius in the face. And so, of course, around Christmas time, you end up with these memes like, ho, 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 Musius, you know? So instead of ho, 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 Santa, it's ho, 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 Musius, and then he punches Arius. And so he's throwing a, fully decking him here. Or, or this one, you know, um, you can't read it here, he's, but it has Arius saying, Jesus is a created, and before he could finish the sentence, St. Nick clocks him, you know? So this is funny, but there's no real evidence we, that we could say for sure that St. Nick decked him. Um, but some people are like, it's not deck the halls, it's deck the heretics. And so there's just a lot of funny jokes that, that come out of this. Now, we do know he was an avid anti-Aryan, um, but I couldn't picture him clocking Arius because Arius was a real old man by this point. That would have been so messed up. Um, I think, you know, St. Nick would have been the one getting coal under the bed and all that had, had he done something like that. So just wanted to put that in there for humor because every Christmas season you're going to see these. Um, it's probably my favorite Christmas joke. Um, but going back to the three parties, right, the, the Arians, the uh, Originists, and the Nicenes, the main dispute is actually going to be between the Nicenes and the Originists. If there were no Originists, Arianism would have disappeared because it was such a minority position. But what's going to happen is the language that the Nicenes ended up using confused the Originists. Um, it, it just did. Like the, the language they used to express Christ's divinity confused the originists, and it came down to, again, this word homoousius. Okay, the Nicene party, when they say homoousius, that the Father and the Son share the same divinity, same divine nature, th th that's what the Nicenes mean by homoousius. But the problem is, remember the Sabellian heretics. Sibelius claiming that the Father and the Son are the same person. Not one God that's three persons, but just one God that changes modes or forms. Sibelianism was declared a heresy, and the originists wanted to stay as far away from Sibelianism as they can. The problem is the Sibelian heretics used the word usia to argue that the Father and the Son were the same person. So when they hear the word homoousia, they think you're saying Father and Son are the same person. Whereas origin gave us the way to distinguish them, eternal generation. 
And so they're thinking these Nicenes are Sabellian heretics. But that's not what the Nicenes meant. So it's two different groups understanding the same word in two different ways. And it's going to lead to um, a lot of disagreement for a lot of years. Now, because the Origenists despised the Sabellian heresy so much that they joined with the Arians. They said, these guys can't be right. The Nicenes can't be right. The Arians have to be closer to the truth because at least the Arians are not saying the Father and Son are the same person. Neither were the Nicenes. Okay? But that's what the originists thought. And so they now join with the Arians and together are the majority against the Nicenes. They misunderstood. Also, there's one more misunderstanding with homoousius. They misunderstood it to mean the divine nature was split apart in two. So they're like either A, you're saying the father and the son are the same person, like the Sabellians, or B, you're saying the divine nature was split into half and now is two coins. And so you're a polytheist. You know, it's like one coin becoming two coins. Um, and so given that that's what they thought homoousia must mean, and given that the word homoousia is not in the Bible, and that's what the Arians would say, hey, they're trying to impose an unbiblical word on us, the originists felt they had to join with the Arians, that the Arians aren't so bad. They didn't quite understand that the Arians were denying the divinity of Christ full on, so they, they team up. And, and really what the... What, the, what happens is the originists, as I said, say you Nicenes are Sabellians, and then the Nicenes listen to the originists and say you're Arians. Now, both were wrong. Okay? The originists were not Arians, and the Nicenes were not Sabellians. But because they both thought that of each other, they both thought each other were heretics. And even young Athanasius, I don't know if I have it on this slide or wherever, I don't want to get too ahead of myself, but young Athanasius declared all the originists, the majority of Eastern bishops, to be heretics. He's like, you guys reject homoousia because you're Arians. It's that simple. And so the young Athanasius will not be as wise as the older Athanasius, and that tends to be the way things work. Um, now, since the originists saw the son as inferior to the father, it sounded similar to the arguments the Arians were making. That's how they could be confused. Okay, because even the originists would say, well, the son, he's God, but he's less than the father. And the Arians would be like, yes, yes, that's what we've been saying. He's less than the father. They're just not going all the way in front of the originists and saying, but he's not God at all. Had they said that early on, I think the originists would have separated from them. Um, so anyway, the Nicene view, though, was that if they're, if they're not fully Arian, then they're semi-Arian. And so we got to... Um, you know, not have fellowship with these guys. And so my point is the result of the language confusion allowed the real heretics, the Arians, to set the Nicenes and Originists against each other for a bitter 50 years. If that didn't happen, this controversy probably would have ended so much quicker. Um, and so that ends up being the problem. And, and the reason why this becomes difficult for the Nicene position is the Originists, and remember, Originists are named after origin. Just in case anybody's forgetting that. The originists were the majority of the bishops of the East, the vast majority. And they did not like the word homoousius because it made them think of Sabellianism. And so people would say, okay, if that's the case, then why did all but three of you affirm the Nicene Creed? And they're like, well, because Constantine was there and he intimidated us. It's that simple. But now we're away from this. We've had more time to think about this. We don't like homoousius. We reject the Nicene Creed. And they were the majority. So this ended up not fixing the problem. They're like, we can't accept the creed because as it stands with that word homoousius, it opens the door to Sabellianism. Um, so most of the Eastern church rejects the creed. 
only the Alexandrians, which was the biggest city, in, one of the biggest cities in the East. No, it was the biggest city in the East. Only the Alexandrians held to the Nicene Creed. All the rest were fighting against it. And so, again, 50 years this will go on. So let me talk about my guy, Athanasius. Life dates 296 to 373. And 328, Alexandria receives Athanasius as its new bishop. Alexander dies. Um, people liked Athanasius so much. He was the outstanding champion of Nicene Orthodoxy. And remember, Alexandria fully supports the Nicene Creed. Um, so given that, that Athanasius was the guy during the Council of Nicaea that made the best, most eloquent arguments, um, they liked him. Because again, in the Council of Nicaea, he stood out. He stood out above everybody else as he's making arguments for Christ's deity. So they're like, this is the guy. And everybody liked him. He was the senior deacon uh, of the former Bishop Alexander, eventually became a presbyter. Um, Athanasius was the, the guy that, of course, he was going to get this position. Now, his entire theology, just to give you a little bit about him, was based on his view of soteriology or salvation. Now, one thing that Athanasius pushed, and a lot of the church fathers pushed this, and I don't think they're wrong, but it does sound weird to modern ears, is they pushed this idea called theosis. Theosis is the idea that we will be deified, that humanity in some sense will become divine, but it doesn't mean what you think it means. It's not like the Hindus where they say you become one with God. No, in, in other words, you take on some of God's attributes like immortality. That belongs to God, but you'll be immortal. Glory belongs to God, but you're going to be glorified. Our salvation is called glorification. Second um, Peter says that in salvation, we become partakers of the divine nature. And so this is how they understood salvation, that, that God's grace lifts human nature above what human nature originally was, and we share in some of the glory and immortality of God. And so if that's what salvation is, which even if that's not how we normally talk about it, that is what salvation is. That's how the Bible describes it, that we'll be united in, with God. We're, we're uh, invited into his, his Trinitarian life in a sense. That's why we're united with Christ in salvation. Um, so if that's what salvation is, then, then Athanasius' point is how can Christ make human nature divine? And remember, by divine, we don't mean we become God, just we become God-like as creatures, okay? But we're always creatures. We're always finite, but we become as close to God as creatures can be, okay? So he says, how can Christ make human nature divine if Jesus himself was less than God? How could a non-divine being increase our nature to have a, a type of divinity to it, okay? Salvation is human nature sharing in God's glories or in the glory of God's nature. So the only way Jesus could do this is he has to be God and man in one person where God lowers himself by joining humanity so he can then take humanity and get humanity to join divinity. And the only way that's possible is if Jesus is both God and man at the same time. What he is saying is Arius's view of God makes you lose the whole thing. You, you lose salvation, in a sense. You lose how the Bible describes salvation, okay? The work of Christ and salvation as described in Scripture make no sense unless Jesus is equal to the Father. And then he brought up the point that, and if you notice, from the New Testament, Christ was worshipped. And then for the whole history of the church, we can't name a single period in church history where Christ wasn't worshipped, yet only the Father's, only God's supposed to be worshipped. Not only the Father, but only God's supposed to be worshipped. If Jesus is worshipped, then he must be equal to the Father. 
And so Athanasius, he had good arguments. He was absolutely unwavering. He was single-minded in his devotion. He did not care what they did to him. There was no, like, bribing this guy. There was no intimidating him to where he would then change his position. And he was witty and humorous as well. In fact, uh, I want to quote, or actually, no, you know, I'll just summarize it. The footnote on page 229 of that book. It's a funny story where... Um, it's one of the times he's exiled. This guy gets exiled from the empire so many times because he just will not bend on this. And so the people trying to arrest him were chasing him. (laughs) And so, but it was dark out. He's like, you know what? Let's turn the boat around and just sail the opposite and pass right by them. And so then they did. And when they passed by the guards trying to arrest him, they're like, have you seen Athanasius? He's like, he's real close. (laughs) And then they just kept going the other way. He wasn't lying. He was real close. He was passing right by him. So smart guy, humorous guy, unwavering guy. Now, what's going to happen is you're going to end up with some gains that, that the Arians will make. With the fighting between the Nicene party and the Originists, the Arians were now able to build up their own strength and increase their own number and increase their own influence. And the way they did it is with politics. And this comes down to that fourth guy I mentioned, Eusebius of Nicomedia in Asia Minor. Not Eusebius of Caesarea, okay? The father of church history, Eusebius of Caesarea, the the father of imperial theology that I talked about last time. He was an Originist, okay? So he'll speak against the Nicene Creed as well, um, but he wasn't an Arian. Eusebius of Nicomedia, he was an Arian, and he was very clever at politics, and he built a network of influence inside Constantine's royal court to where he became Constantine's like friend, his advisor. Uh, he was in the emperor's ear. And remember, the emperor's an amateur theologian. Eusebius of Nicomedia is not. And so Constantine, due to their friendship, makes him the patriarch of Constantinople in 339. And what he does as he's in the emperor's ears, he gets the emperor to undo the banishment of Arius. Let's bring Arius back to the empire. And by the way, Arius, even though he comes back, he's no longer the leading figure. He's old. Um, you know, he, his enemies described him still as being proud, but people are going to follow some of the other big names now. And as far as... Uh, Uh, Well, I don't want to get ahead of myself because the way I have it on this slide isn't necessarily in chronological order. So let me just say this. Arius comes back in 328, never rises in importance again. Um, Right after this, okay, Eusebius then convinces Constantine to expel supporters of Nicaea. So not only do you bring Arius back, but start banishing the Nicenes, they're in the minority. You know, they're, they're not the majority of the empire. They're the ones who are causing the problems right now. So expel them. Um, and, and again, <laughs> Nicaea, or I mean, uh, Athanasius gets ex- uh, banished for the first time here. This, and you might say the first time. Yeah, this is the first of five exiles for Athanasius. Five times he gets kicked out of the Roman Empire. In fact, he spends 17 of his 45 years as Bishop of Alexandria in exile. So this is a guy in his famous line when uh, the whole empire seems to have embraced Arianism. Somebody's like, why don't you give it up, Athanasius? The whole world's against you. He's like, then I'm against the whole world. Again, I love this guy. He's, you know, he just, he sticks to his guns because they were the right guns. Uh, But anyhow, how did Eusebius convince Constantine to throw uh, Athanasius out with a lie? 
And he knew he was lying. He told the emperor that Athanasius threatened to blockade the empire's grain supply, which comes through Alexandria. It was not true. And so Constantine's like, all right, he's a political threat. Get him out of here. Um, and again, first of, of five exiles. Now, Constantine, because of his friendship with, um, with Eusebius of Nicomedia, was very much leaning towards the Arian side, even though previously he was on the Nicene side. But in 336, Arius dies a very horrific death. Um, pretty much, uh, I, I can't remember exactly how it goes, but somebody put a curse on him in the sense said, look, you know, if Arius is true, then may I die. But if the Nicene position is true, then may God let the whole world know that Arius is a heretic. And then that day, Arius died of hemorrhaging in his bowels. And I mean, this was just diarrhea. But it was diarrhea so bad that part of his liver and spleen came out. And, and again, even his enemy, even his, uh, the enemies of the Nicenes record that this happened. He did die in a pool of his own filth and some of his organs that came out. I figured, like, what a way to go. Like the, you know, sometimes I've, well, never mind. I was about to say, sometimes I say I could understand the potential of a bowel movement killing somebody. It really did. It really did in, in this case. Now, Constantine hears this. And he says, okay, that's vindication then of Nicaea, the Council of Nicaea. Like, I was listening to Eusebius, but then Arius dies of diarrhea? Okay, you know what? I think God's vindicating this other position. And we don't know exactly where Constantine landed when he died, but we know in 336 he was thinking, okay, maybe the Nicenes are right. And then he dies in 337. So Constantine didn't have much, much more time in this world. Now, there's going to be further divisions under Constantine's sons, okay? So he dies, as I said, 337. His empire then gets divided east and west between his sons, Constans in the west and Constantius in the east. And I talked a little bit about Constantius last time, but not Constans. Okay, Constans in the west favored the Nicene position. And remember, the western church was totally Nicene. This wasn't a controversy there. All this stuff's mainly in the east, Okay, so, um, so Constans favors the Nicenes, Constantius favors the Arians, because again, Eusebius of Nicomedia was in his ear as well. The Western bishops, again, solidly Nicene in their theology, Arianism had no chance in the West, which is going to be an argument for the papacy later, because they're going to say, hey, we never got this wrong. The Eastern Church has got this wrong. We in Rome, we always had it right, so just Remember that in the back of your head as the papacy starts advancing its arguments in the future. Um, so here's the thing. Athanasius, when he gets um, exiled, okay, when Athanasius gets exiled, he often goes to Rome because he knows he's going to be safe in Rome because he knows the bishops of Rome have his back. Um, it's just, just the way it goes. And so the bishop of Rome reviewed Athanasius's case and said, you know what, this man's not guilty. He was exiled based on a lie and wrongfully deposed of his position in Alexandria. So when the Bishop of Rome says this, and remember, the Bishop of Rome thinks that he is the first among equals, the East retaliates. The Eastern bishops retaliate by saying, you know what, Rome has no right on this. Athanasius is an Eastern bishop, and he's been kicked out of the East. Um, he, he, he has no right, no right to judge such a case. And so they then assemble a council of Eastern bishops in Antioch in 341. So it's not an ecumenical council because it's only the East. And they rewrote the Nicene Creed and took out Homoousius. Okay, so that's what's happening in the East. Now, the originists, 
advance a different word, homoousius. Anybody see the difference? There's one letter, I, or iota in Greek, right? And you might say this small little letter in Greek, it's the smallest of the letters. What difference can it make? A huge difference, okay? Homoousius means that the father and the son are the same substance or essence. Homoousius means they are similar substance or essence, but not the same. Okay, so the originists, they were okay with that. They're like, okay, because we believe that the son is eternally generated from the father, but he's a little lesser than him. So we'll say he's a substance like the father. And then the Arians are like, yeah, we could jump on that because it's still showing that he's not the same as the father. So now again, the Arians and the originists are uniting behind this new label, homoousius. Um, And again, the deception here, though, is the Arians meant something different than the originists. So both groups like homoousius now, but the Arians like it because they think they could use it to say Jesus was created. The originists use it because they think they could use it to prevent Sabellianism. You get what I'm saying? So the originists are trying to use this label for a good reason. The Arians are using it for a bad reason. But the point is they're both united behind it against the actual Orthodox party, which was the Nicenes. And so the Arians, and by the way, when Homoousius came out, young Athanasius said that's no different than Arianism. So the originists, as far as I'm concerned, you're Arians. You're heretics, and you're against the original Nicene Creed. I don't care if you're in the majority. You're all wrong. You're evil, and so forth. And so, of course, all those bishops hated young Athanasius. And I'll tell you, when I first jumped onto Twitter, I was appalled by the way pastors act and accuse each other of stuff and just so uncharitable. When I read, uh, took a much deeper dive into the, the relationships of the bishops during this time, Twitter is very tame compared to what was happening. These guys not only talked a mad amount of trash about each other, they framed each other for crimes to get each other thrown in prison and exiled. Athanasius was uh, accused of murder, accused of assaulting somebody in the street, accused of robbing a church of its gold, using his thugs to go in and steal all the gold. And a lot of this stuff gets him kicked out and makes him have to run from the authorities. It wasn't true. And so, again, it, it takes it to the, to, to the next level. But young Athanasius made a lot of enemies because he's like, if you support homoousius rather than the homoousius, you're an Arian. I got no room for you. Later, old Athanasius is going to change on this. And that's what's going to um, really uh, fix things. Okay, And so because the Bishop of Rome backed Athanasius, this nearly led to a complete split between the, the Roman or the, between the Eastern and the Western Empire. Um, and what happened is their respective emperors, again, were even on opposite sides of this. And so the two emperors said, you know what, we got to hash this out. Let's force an ecumenical council again. Didn't work. They tried to force the ecumenical council, but what happened is each side formed its own council and hurled curses at each other. This was the state of the church during this time. The East refused to allow Athanasius and a guy named Marcellus to take part in the council. That's why they formed their own council and hurled these curses. Now, Marcellus, at first, the bishop of Rome thought he was just like Athanasius. So he said, this guy's innocent too. Turns out Marcellus really was a Sabellian. And so the East was right to be suspicious of him, but they weren't right to be suspicious of of Athanasius. Um, So what's going to happen is you're going to have some, what I call imperial oscillation here. 
over the next few years, okay, after they have these two separate councils where they curse each other, they actually start to make concessions. It looks like they're going to get along and fix it. The West realized, oh, Marcellius is a Sabellian. Fine, we'll kick him out. And then the East is like, oh, okay. So you guys aren't sheltering Sabellians. So, okay, Athanasius isn't a Sabellian. So let Athanasius come back. He could, he could come back to Alexandria and, and everything will be fine. So he goes back in 346. It looks like there might be peace. Things improve. And then you get a rogue general, Magnentius, who murders the Nicene emperor of the West, Constance. Okay, so now Rome's in civil war and Constantius of the East then has to defeat this general. And now he becomes the sole ruler of the empire. Now, why is this a problem? Because Constantius was an Arian. Okay? So there is no Western pro-Nicene guy. So now the guy who's in control of everything is only an Arian. And he actually leads the charge of persecution. Persecution comes back to the real believers by the heretics. The Arians uh, start persecuting the Nicene party. Constantius' chief argument is my position must be right because if it wasn't, God wouldn't have let me win the whole empire. The fact that I won the whole empire means Arius was right, which is just a, a foolish argument. Because um, when Julian the Apostate comes in, well, then what does that mean? You know, and remember, Julian is going to be the one who replaces him. Uh, so anyhow, uh, he's going to send into exile a lot of bishops and a lot of presbyters that refuse to submit to him. His most famous victim was a guy named Hilary. It's a man. Okay, Hilary was a man named back then. Hilary of Patiers, uh, 315 to, to 368 of Western France. Uh, he was exiled in 356, and uh, that's when he writes his famous treatise on the Trinity. Good stuff. You know, you read him, you know, you, you read that, you're going to be like, wow, he makes some very sophisticated arguments in favor of the Trinity. Um, people called him the Athanasius of the West. He was, he was that influential. And he was the first great Western hymn writer because he realized one way the Arians spread their heresy is they wrote catchy songs. And little kids would be skipping down the street singing, there was a time when Christ was not, or there was a time when the sun was not. They would be singing that. And so he's like, wow, they brainwash people with songs. So he starts writing Trinitarian songs that will become very popular in, in the West. Now, there's going to be some bad times for the Nicene Christians. The year 356, tough year, tough year. Uh, the Bishop of Rome was exiled by Constantius, right? Hosius of Cordova, who was Constantine's original advisor on this, he's now 100 years old. He is arrested and tortured by order of the emperor, a 100-year-old man being tortured in inhumane ways. Due to the arrests and the tortures, both the Bishop of Rome would be the Pope before there were popes. And Hosius, they cracked. And to save their lives and to stop the pain, they signed a statement that they agree with Arian Christianity. This was a big blow. This hurt the cause badly when two of the most famous and most important Nicene supporters now are supposedly Arians. Now, I will tell you this, Hosius renounced the Arian Creed on his deathbed a year later and said, no, Christ is God of gods. I hold to the Nicene Creed. Um, so he renounced his, uh, his previous recantation. Um, another problem in 356 is Athanasius gets exiled again. But this time the emperor wanted him arrested and punished, so he had to go hide in the Egyptian desert. And this is where the monks, the hermits, took him in and uh, supported him for those six years. Now, you don't know about monks yet. We will be having a conversation about monks eventually. They're weird. 
but they are fascinating. And, uh, and these monks, and he, Athanasius was very fond of one monk in particular called uh, St. Anthony. Um, and so, yeah, we'll be talking about the monks uh, when, when we get there. Um, but so you have Athanasius, the defender of Nicene Orthodoxy, hiding for six years. The two champions of it in the West recanted. And it was only later that they then say, nope, we, you know, rescind our recantation. And then Constantius took all the church buildings away from uh, the Nicenes and gave them to the Arians. Only Arians could use church buildings, which made it to where Nicenes had to worship outside. And then one day um, in, I'm trying to remember what what city it was, there was a, a large fire that the soldiers kindled and women were outside worshiping. In, in the Orthodox way, and the soldiers told them, you either declare loyalty to Arianism or we're going to throw you in the fire. The women didn't. They said, no, we believe in the divinity of Christ. So they weren't thrown in the fire, but they were stripped naked and beaten very severely and then had to, you know, walk through the town in, you know, nude and bruised up and bloodied up. Um, I mean, that's the kind of stuff that was happening. That's what the Arians were doing. Constantius's tactics were so brutal that by the year 360, most of the empire was claiming to be Arian. And this would be around the time where like the whole world's against you, Athanasius. He's like, well, then I'm against the world. Because through persecution, a lot of Orthodox people folded. Um, but fortunately, it's not going to last. And what happens is the originists wake up. When you make a deal with the devil, eventually the devil tries to eat you. And that's what happens here, okay? Um, Arianism, because now it's legal and has the full weight of the government behind it, it produces two eloquent champions who are going to be bolder than previous Arians, Aetius and Eunomius. And I know more about Eunomius because I had to, you know, read some of his arguments. He was a much more sophisticated Arian than Arius. Uh, He made some very strong, logical-sounding arguments, but then... A group called the Cappadocian Fathers just annihilated him. You know, you read his arguments, you're like, man, what are they going to say? And then you read theirs, you're like, oh, they destroyed him. Uh, But Eunomius was very bold. And as he's getting bolder in his Arian position, making it clear Jesus is not God. He's created. At that point, the originists are like, wait a second. That's what the Arians believe? That Jesus was created? We thought they saw homoousius like we did. And so the Orgesists realized, oh no, we're on the wrong side and the government's under their control. But it was too late. Now the Arians started attacking the Orgenists now that they had the power. So they started deposing them and exiling the Orgenists. And so now the Orgenists understood why it was important that we stress Christ's divinity. They were so afraid of Sabellianism that they didn't see what was really creeping into their back door. And so Christ's divinity it needed to be emphasized you know, with, with uh, no shame. And so now they're like, now we get the Nicene party. We understand why they said what they said, but it's too late. So Cyril of, or Cyril of Jerusalem, an originist, he actually joins the Nicenes. He says, you know what? They're right. He joins them and he becomes one of their greatest spokesmen. He even gets to um, give a, a speech at the Council of Constantinople, which finally settles this once and for all. Um, so you now have the possibility of, of the good sides coming together. Constantius dies in 361, and he's replaced by Julian the Apostate. Remember Julian? He was the guy who rejected Christianity, tried to make Rome pagan again. Um, He only reigned two years, 
so he wasn't able to pull it off. But here's the thing. Julian allowed all the exiles to return. Um, and you might think, oh, what a, what a dignified, enlightened monarch. No. He wanted the Nicene and the Originists to come back because he thought it would fracture Christianity and it would increase the divisions and destroy it, and then his paganism would win. The exact opposite happened. Uh, in, in fact, Athanasius returns to Alexandria as a popular hero at this point, and he's now, I call him old Athanasius, and he's wiser now. He realized that the Originists and the Nicenes were fighting the same battle against the Arians, and so he suggested an alliance. Guys, I think we're very close. Why don't we come together, form an alliance, and reach a doctrinal agreement and defeat those who say the Son is not God? And the Originists are like, yes, let's do it. I just picture like, you know, Gimli, like, you know, but anyhow, um, you know, Fellowship of the Rings type talk here. And so Athanasius then argues to the Nicenes. He's like, listen, we need to accept the Originists as our brothers. I know when I was young, I said that anybody who says homoousius is an Arian, but that's not true. Okay, we should not treat those who have a difficulty with homoousia as enemies, but as brothers, because when we say homoousius and they say homoousius, we mean the same thing. This is when Athanasius realized they don't mean what the Arians mean. They are simply saying that to say the father and son aren't the same person. We agree with them on that. Okay, Um, you know, and what we mean is the father and son aren't the same person, but they're the same essence. The originists, for the most part, agree with that. So Athanasius said, our battle over this word has messed us up for a long time. So now that we know what they believe and they know what we believe, we're just arguing about a word. Forget the word. Let's come together. And so then this leads to peace and unity that Julian the apostate did not expect. He's like, ah, and so then he expelled Athanasius again. Poor Athanasius. The guy's always getting expelled. Um, and so, <clears throat> so that's what happens there. Now, after Julian's death, Valentinian becomes emperor and he places his brother Valens over the east and Valens was an Arian and he started persecuting the non-Arians. But by this point, the non-Arians were a big pack against him. The Nicenes and the Originists are now together. He realizes this is the majority of my empire that I'm having to persecute. And so with that, he realized it only strengthened their unity more. And so he stopped the persecution. He, He stopped the persecution Uh, and relented. Athanasius was allowed to come back, and he won't be exiled anymore after this. He'll be able to serve the rest of his days unbothered, and he will die in peace in 373. And, you know, the one thing historians say about Athanasius is it was his opposition to Arianism that uh, really did more than anything else to defeat it. Um, So just a couple more things, and then we'll be done, because I I do want to finish this one. Athanasius is going to be replaced by a new generation of thinkers called the Cappadocian Fathers. Um, Cappadocia is a region of Asia Minor. You're going to have three theologians in particular that come out of that region that uh, knew Athanasius, had his theology, but they're going to take it one step further. Um, So you have Basil of Caesarea, you have Gregory of Nyssa, those two are brothers, and then you have Gregory of Nazianzus. Uh, again, all natives of Cappadocia, and um, Basil and Gregory of Nyssa came from a wealthy Christian family. Uh, and then Basil, when he was a young man and he was in college studying in Caesarea within Cappadocia, not the Caesarea in Israel, um, he met Gregory of Nazianzus, and they become best friends. Uh, they considered themselves like David and Jonathan, um, and they were both experts in pagan culture. They knew 
pagan philosophy like the back of their hand and they felt like they could plunder the Egyptians and use philosophy in a Christian way. It didn't cause them to wander from their Christian beliefs. And with their Christianity and their ability to, to think um, in terms of Greek logic, they were able to make arguments that persuaded um, the empire of that time. So Basil was called to be a presbyter in Caesarea. He earned a name there, a reputation of combating Arianism. So in 370, they made him bishop. Gregory of Nazianzus, his best friend, became bishop in his hometown of Nazianzus. Now, he wasn't more of a public fighter. Uh, he was more of like a quiet guy with books, but he had a reputation as well. And in 379 to 381, he actually becomes the patriarch of Constantinople. Um, which at that time, in Constantinople, almost everyone was Arian. By the time Gregory of Nazianzus is done, people made the switch. That's how persuasive his arguments were. I had to read his five theological orations for a Christology PhD seminar that I did. I was so impressed with this guy. No wonder, because if that's what he preached, no wonder that whole city you know, made the switch from Arianism to, to Orthodoxy. It was just very, very impressive. Um, and he and John Chrysostom were considered the most eloquent preachers, eloquent preachers of the patristic era. Like their John Chrysostom, his nickname was Golden Mouth. And like his, he preaches so good, we're calling him Golden Mouth. Gregory was seen on that level. Um, so great thinker, great preacher. Um, so even in the capital, in the heart of the Eastern Empire, he wins it back for, uh, you know, Nicene Orthodoxy. And then the younger brother of Basil, Gregory of Nyssa, he was bishop of that town in Asia Minor called Caesarea. He was so effective in arguing against Arianism that they said, hey, at the next ecumenical council, Council of Constantinople, which puts this baby to bed, he's the one who gets to give the opening address. Um, <clears throat> now, I will throw this out there. He loved Origen so much that he embraced Origen's false doctrine of universal salvation, that everyone, including Satan, will be saved. And although the early church saw this as an embarrassment, um, they still understood that Gregory of Nyssa was a net positive, um, especially because of what he wrote as it relates to Trinitarianism. So all in all, these Cappadocian fathers rank among Athanasius. They're on his level uh, for, as being remarkable theologians of the East in the 4th century. In fact, they had a big role on Augustine's uh, Trinitarian theology as well. Um, and so what they did is, here's why these three are important. They're the ones who complete the unity between the Originist and the Nicene to where there are no more Originists anymore. They all become Nicene. And I'll explain how. It has to deal with theological language, okay? Theological language. The problem that caused these guys to fight for so long was the words, two Greek words, hypostasis and ousia. Okay, before the Cappadocians, these two words were synonyms. So you could say hypostasis or ousia, they, they tend to mean the same thing. And so what was confusing is when the Nicene said that the Father and the Son have one nature or essence, sometimes they'd use the word hypostasis, sometimes they'd use the word ousia. And when the originists would say the Father and Son are two distinct persons, they also would use both these words. So they were talking past each other. And so what Basil suggested, and the other two backed him on this, is, hey, let's make two proposals. First, let's all agree that the word ousia, from now on, late 300s, ousia will only refer to the divine nature. 
Okay, the substance. So usia refers to the one substance or nature of the Father. And then second, the word hypostasis should only refer to the persons. Okay, so usia, there's one usia, but there's multiple hypostases. And when they all agreed on the terminology, then they all realized, oh, we do believe the same thing. Um, and, and, and that's what fixed it. Now, I would say they kind of got this wrong because in the book of Hebrews, it uses hypostasis like they used usia. So if they were to be fully correct, they would have made hypostasis the substance and then usia the persons. But we've been dealt the historical hand we've been dealt with. So today, you better say one usia, three hypostases, otherwise you're a heretic, right? That's just what we, what we inherited from them. Um, no, no, no getting around that. Um, so the Cappadocians also settled the controversy as to whether or not the Holy Spirit is God. Because you have to understand, there were some people who rejected Arianism and said Jesus is God, but they didn't think the Holy Spirit was God. They were called uh, the Potuma the, uh, Tomachians. Very hard word to say. Well, the Cappadocian father said, no, that's dumb too. In the same sense that the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. There's one usia, three hypostases, um, and, uh, and of course, the Potuma, uh, uh, the Potuma Tomachians, uh, Panuma Tomachians means fighters against the Spirit. That's what they, you guys fight against the Holy Spirit. Um, so they, you know, Athanasius previously already argued that the Holy Spirit needs to be seen as God along with the Father and the Son, also homoousius with them. Cappadocians built upon his argument, strengthened it, and pretty much everybody accepted it. Um, so with the better theological language, the dispute over the Son, well... But, Actually, the dispute over the Son led to the quest for the full doctrine of the Trinity. Once they had Jesus figured out, like, yes, he is God of gods. What about the Holy Spirit? Same thing, right? And the Cappadocians, see, I got ahead of myself. They uh, offered this formula for expressing the Trinity. God is three hypostases and one usia. And then the way they would describe the hypostases, like how are they distinct? God the Father possesses one divine nature. He shares it completely with His Son through eternal generation. He begets Him from all eternity, and then the Holy Spirit, He proceeds from the Father from all eternity, actually from the Father and the Son. And so it shows how all three have always existed. None come before the others, but the the Son is eternally generated, meaning He's always come from the Father, and the Holy Spirit's always come from the Father and the Son through uh, spiration. Um, and so those were the, the terminology they used. They based it on certain statements in John's Gospel, and it's worked from then to now, and it makes sense. And so the Nicenes and the Originists were able to unite and rally around this formula and say, we agree, three hypostases, one usia, we are good, Right. And so um, the originists then even say, you know what? We no longer agree with origin. There's no sense in which the Son is less than the Father. They are equal in, in every way in their divine nature. Um, and so that's why I said the originists became Nicene. They all became Nicene at this point. Um, and then the Nicene said, hey, thank you for that concession, and we will distance ourselves from too. And, um, and yeah, they were able to present a united front against the Arians, which then ends this. This is the last slide before the conclusion. It ends it with the, uh, the Council of Constantinople in 381. 
Valens dies fighting the gods in 378. The Western emperor, a Nicene supporter, appoints a Nicene emperor to rule the east. Theodosius, we talked about him last time. Theodosius is Nicene. He eventually becomes the sole emperor. And in 380, he issues an edict that only Nicene believers are allowed to use the term Catholic church. And all church buildings and property only go to Orthodox believers. Arians are cut out. They got, they got no government support anymore. In 381, Theodosius summons an ecumenical council at Constantinople. And produce, they produced a revised version of the creed from the Council of Nicaea, and this is the one that today we call the Nicene Creed, okay, because it's an updated, better, more complete version. It reaffirmed and enhanced the teaching from 325, and it uses the word homoousius, and the Eastern bishops were all fine with it at this point, and where it improves upon the, um, the original creed is it has some things about the Holy Spirit being God as well. You know, so that's where you would find in the Nicene Creed. The original one didn't focus on the Spirit. This one does. Within a hundred years, the Nicene Creed becomes so influential in the East that it was read in every worship service on Sunday. Just to say, hey, this is our confession. If you don't believe this, you're not a real Christian. A hundred years after that, the Western churches started doing the same. And so the Council of Constantinople was the death blow to Arianism within the Catholic Church. And when I say Catholic, I don't mean Roman Catholic. I mean the universal church of that time. Now, Arianism will live on in some Germanic tribes for several centuries. And let me just real fast give you a little bit of stupid history. There was a group called the Arians way before this, 2500 B.C., from Russia, Indo-European area, that invaded India and conquered it. And then, you know, intermarried with the, the natives and became what are the Indians today. That group from Russia that conquered India were called Aryans, spelt different, spelt with a Y. They were called Aryans, and their symbol was the swastika. Now, there was no German connection to those Aryans. Remember, the, Hitler thought the Russians were inferior, but Hitler was a bad historian. Because the heretic Arius, word unrelated to Arian, okay, but the Arius was exiled to Germany for a while, some of the German tribes became followers of Arius and they were called Arians. Hitler then thought then that the Arians, meaning the heretics of the German tribes, were identical with the Arians of an earlier time who conquered an inferior, darker-skinned people from his standpoint. And so he takes the title Arian, he takes the swastika, their symbol, and flips it a little bit and claims to be like, hey, we're just finishing what the Arians of the past did. Again, he got it wrong. It was a word association by two unrelated words that sounded the same. So now you could go on who wants to win it, be a millionaire and, and know what hardly anybody knows. Anyhow, so in conclusion, Okay, and then I'll take some questions and then you can get on out of here. Anyway, so the Arian controversy, this was a true threat to Orthodox Christianity. This is why contending for the faith delivered to us is so important. This is what happens when you don't contend for the faith. You end up with situations like this. But this victory of Trinitarian Orthodoxy did not solve all the theological controversy. It's going to give birth to other ones, very serious ones. Now that it is settled that the Son is homoousius with the Father and the Holy Spirit, how do we understand the incarnation? How do we understand Jesus now being God and man? How can one that is homoousius with the Father, meaning one substance with the Father, also be homoousius with humanity, one substance with humanity? Okay? And so the answers that are offered become extremely divisive 
So we're not out of the woods yet. Not until I believe uh, 451 is when we get out of the woods. Um, and so the controversy will lead us, though, to probably the most robust creed ever written uh, from the Council of Chalcedon, the Chalcedonian Creed. And, and so my point is this precise Trinitarian theology that we got from, the, from Constantinople, the Council of Constantinople, is then going to require the church to now labor for a precise Christology. By the time we get to Chalcedon, we have both. And it's like, yay, all this stuff's over. So that's what the next lesson is going to be on. It's going to be on the controversy of how the second person, Christ, is able to be both uh, God and man. But with that, uh, I...